Hey, good morning, Tulip Street. So glad to be with you again this morning. If you're visiting with us, if you're a guest here, maybe this is your first time or you're kind of a returning visitor, we're so glad to have you with us today. Uh, and I hope this, you feel right at home with us. We are continuing in our series through the book of Jonah. We're almost done with it. We are in, here's a big fancy word, the penultimate episode, the second to last episode right before the series finale, if you will. And today we're looking at episode five, The Injustice of Grace. So we're in the first five verses of Jonah chapter four, if you're following along in your Bibles or in your Bible apps, or if you are in the version Bible app, again, you can find today's lesson notes under the events tab. Uh, if you need help finding that, that's um, the more, click on the little more icon down in the bottom right, and then you'll see events there, and you should be able to find Tulip Street Christian Church. Episode 5, The Injustice of Grace. What's brought us to this point so far? Well, previously on The Antihero, we've seen God call Jonah to go to Nineveh, there, kind of northeast of Israel. And what does he do? He goes down to the port city of Joppa. He goes down into a boat and heads to Tarshish, the other side of the known world to Jonah. But things do not go Jonah's way. God sends a storm out onto the Mediterranean Sea that catches them all by surprise. They figure out it's Jonah who's kind of responsible for all of this because he's running from the God who made the land and the sea. He's running from him on the sea. You've killed us all. You've doomed us all, you idiot. What do we do? Throw me overboard. So the sailors, these pagan sailors, pray to God, please don't hold this man's life against us. And they toss him overboard. Immediately the storm stops. The sailors are like, that's incredible. And they start praising and sacrificing and worshiping to Jonah's God as they go. Jonah, meanwhile sinks down into the depths of the Mediterranean Sea, thinking this is the end, this is it, my life is over, only to be met with the gaping jaws of a huge fish to swallow him and, in a sense, save his life. So he spends three days in this kind of limbo between life and death. He's not fully alive, not fully dead. He's just kind of in this in-between space, and he prays to God this prayer of, Thanksgiving for saving his life, uh, but that's kind of where it stops. No, no, I'm sorry, no word of repentance, no word of, hey, I'm going to get back on track, nothing like that. Well, God hears his prayer, saves him anyway. The whale, the fish thing, vomits him out onto the dry land. And so he does end up going. We looked last week how The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, even though he didn't deserve it, even though he had already failed the first time around, God gives him a second chance. God is a God of second chances. Go to Nineveh. So this time he does. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh. And he's in Nineveh, and he preaches a five-word sermon. Now, my my kids, my my family, they have ADHD, so they have trouble... um, focusing a lot. And so last week I went long and they let me know it. Okay. I apologize if you're in that boat too. I said today will be shorter, but they couldn't believe I went so long on a five word sermon. 
They're like, be more like Jonah. I'm like, I'm trying. I'm sorry. Jonah preached a five-word sermon. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. We looked at that sermon kind of in depth, what all that means and how it could mean either salvation or destruction awaits you. You have a choice. It depends on how you respond. And the people of Nineveh responded in a big way. The entire city uh, repents. They, they go on this huge fast and spend time in prayer and, and sorrow. And they turn from their evil ways and the violence that they commit against each other. And God saw what they did. And God saw how they responded. He saw their actions. He saw their heart, how they had turned from their evil ways. And God relented from the disaster that he had threatened them with. And he did not do it. He saw that they turned from their evil, so he literally in the Hebrew turned from his evil that he was going to send on them as well. So that's the recap so far. That's the story so far. And I mentioned last week, Jonah's only mentioned three times in the entire third chapter of Jonah. Three times Jonah's mentioned. And then he bounces. He's out. And it focuses on on the people of Nineveh. So the question is, where is Jonah? Where is he during this time? What happens? You know, because if if the book of Jonah just ended at chapter 3, that would be an amazing story. This reluctant prophet finally obeys God, does what he's supposed to do, gets to this city full of his enemies, and converts the entire town. Roll credits. That would have been an amazing, amazing story. But there's a fourth chapter. What is the fourth chapter all about? It's not about the people of Nineveh anymore. Because really, it never was. The book of Jonah is not about the sailors on the boat. It's not about the fish It's not even about the people of Nineveh, even though the conversion of Nineveh is the primary miracle in the story. The story is not even about Jonah. The story of Jonah is about God and his people and how we, as his people, are going to respond to the bigger mission of God. So where is Jonah? Jonah, well, verse 1 of chapter 4, Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. In fact, um, in, the, in the Hebrew, this phrase greatly displeased, it literally means this seemed evil to Jonah. The fact that God turned from the evil he was going to send on Nineveh because they turned from their evil, this seemed evil to Jonah. This seemed like the wrong move. Jonah wants to play God and tell God what to do. And to Jonah, this seemed the absolute wrong move. (laughs) Like I said, it's not about the people of Nineveh. It's, It's about us ultimately. How are we going to respond to God's grace? Another thing that Jonah chapter 4 reveals to us is why Jonah ran in the first place. That has not been settled until now. 
Why did Jonah run? You as the reader are encouraged to maybe piece some things together at the beginning of the story, knowing, hopefully, that Assyria was the big bad empire of the day and they were awful and they were atrocious to all the peoples that they have conquered. They are enemy number one of the nation state of Israel at that time. And at that time of Jonah, the empire of Assyria was actually on a slight decline and the kingdom of Israel had been increasing, had been prosperous, had been regaining some ground that had been taken from them, all under God's message through the prophet Jonah. So you're trying to piece this together. Well, Jonah didn't want to go because they're his enemies. Jonah didn't want to go because he's afraid of what would happen to him. Jonah's, Jonah doesn't want to go because of the political uh, geopolitics of his day and how they're the enemy and he doesn't... Uh, you can piece it all together all you want, but up until this point, we aren't told why he runs. And here's the thing that we learn in Jonah chapter 4. Jonah didn't run because he was afraid something bad would happen to him. He ran because he was afraid something good would happen to his enemy. He didn't run because he was afraid of what would happen to him. He ran because he was afraid something good would happen to his enemy. That takes it to a whole other level. In fact, these are Jonah's words here in Jonah chapter four. He prayed to the Lord, which is only the second time in this entire book so far. He prayed to the Lord, please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? He's still thinking about his own country rather than the people of Nineveh. Anyway, that's why I fled to Tarshish in the first place. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, take my life from me for it's better for me to die than to live. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar to anybody in here? You are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. See, this, unbeknownst to you, is a sequel to the series we had just done on the Lord, the Lord, Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Because I wanted to, to set the stage for who God is, what God's character is like. He is gracious. He is compassionate. He is slow to anger. He's abounding in love. He is Faithful, he is just, all, he is forgiving. All of these things that God tells us about himself. And now Jonah takes what God tells us about himself and throws it back in God's face. I knew this is who you are and that's why I ran. Because I don't want your grace and your compassion and your forgiveness to extend to these people. Jonah knows the character of God, and that's what scares and angers him. He knows the kind of God he serves. He knows the scriptures. He knows God. He's a prophet of the Lord. He knows 
Exactly what we had just been studying a few weeks back, that the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, maintaining faithful love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. But he does not leave the guilty unpunished, but he brings the sins of the fathers and the iniquity of the fathers on the sons and their sons to the third and fourth generation. We looked at that in depth the last few weeks. And now Jonah is a natural follow-up to that, asking how far that goes. How far does this go? Is this just who God is only for the people of Israel? Is it who God is only for a select few here on planet Earth? Or does it extend to everybody? Is this who God is for us? Or is this who God is for them too? Whoever they are, our enemy, the other, the people that we like to discredit, the people that we like to push to the margins, the people that we like to forget about and overlook. Is God this kind of God for us, or is he this kind of God for them too? How far does that go? The story of Jonah is a lesson in just how far God's grace and compassion and forgiveness can go. And Jonah doesn't like it. He becomes furious. He Really, he doesn't quote Exodus 34 so much as he does quote Joel chapter 2. Joel is another one of those minor prophets that you've probably never studied. It's a strange book, I'll, I'll admit. It's all about a plague of locusts that's striking Israel and you know, trying to turn Israel back to God. But right in the middle of the book, it says this. Even now, this is the Lord's declaration. Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and mourning. Joel's talking to the people of Israel. But this is exactly what the people of Nineveh do as well, right? Weeping, mourning, fasting. That's exactly how the people of Nineveh respond to. This message from Joel was originally for Israel. But Jonah sees it happening in Nineveh. Joel goes on, tear your hearts, not just your clothes, and return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, and he relents from sending disaster. That's what Jonah quotes. He says, this is supposed to be for us, for us, the people of Israel. This is what you told us to do, and we did it. It's not supposed to be for them. It's not supposed to be for them. You are our God, not theirs. He goes on, who knows? God may turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him so that you can offer a grain offering and drink offering to the Lord your God. Who knows? God may relent. That's exactly what the king of Nineveh said when he issued his decree. Everybody should fast and wear sackcloth and all this stuff and turn from your evil ways. And who knows? God may relent from sending this disaster. So, Jonah's taken what Joel, the other prophet, had said, and he's turning it back on God. This is supposed to be for us, God, not them. Dr. Kevin Youngblood says this about Jonah's response. He says, Jonah was distressed to discover that the divine attributes listed in Exodus 34, 6, and 7, which elsewhere express Yahweh's disposition toward Israel, 
also expressed Yahweh's disposition toward Assyria. Jonah suspected that Yahweh might extend the same mercy to Assyria that he had extended to his own people. Sorry for that typo there. And thus, Jonah fled. He knew God's character. He knew who God was for him and his own people. But he had this inkling that God might just step out and extend that same kind of mercy towards his enemy. And that's why he ran. And that's what seemed evil to Jonah himself. But I think Jonah needed to go back just a little bit further. I think he needed to go back further in the story, not just to what God revealed about himself in the book of Exodus, but all the way back to the original covenant God made with their forefather, Abraham, or Abram as he's known in Genesis 12. I think he needed to go back even further to what God's original mission was. And it wasn't just for the people of Israel. Look at what God says to Abraham when he calls him from the first time. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Go up from your land and your relatives and your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. All the peoples, all nations, people from every tribe, tongue, nation, language, every ethnic group all across the globe, people that you, Abraham, don't even know exist right now, all peoples will be blessed through you. Jonah had forgotten that. Jonah remembered God's promises to the people of Israel. He had forgotten God's promises to the rest of planet Earth. He was, so, he, he was like one of those horses with blinders on. He could only see what was right in front of him. Jonah could only see his people. He only had a heart for his own countrymen. And he was blind to everyone else. Everyone else can be lost for all I care. So why was, why was Jonah so angry? Let's break it down a little bit further. Why was Jonah so angry? Jonah views life as a zero-sum game. I've used that term before uh, in, a, in a lesson, but I think it applies here too. He views life as a zero-sum game. A zero-sum game, the definition of that is it's a situation in which one person or group can win something only by causing another person or group to lose it. There can only be one team that wins, right? If they're tied, they're going to extra innings. That's why so many Americans don't like soccer, because it can end at a tie, and that that shouldn't happen. Um, (laughs) But there can only be one winner. It can only be the Colts or the Patriots. It can't be both, right? It It can only be IU or Purdue. It can't be both, right? I don't want to start something here, all right? But just for example, we know a zero sum game. Life is not that, but we think it is so often. We think we can only win if someone else loses. We can only get God's blessing if someone else gets God's curse. Jonah needed to figure out life is not a system of winners and losers. 
God's blessing, God's love, and his mercy can extend to all people. It doesn't run out. It's not a scarce resource. God's love, God's forgiveness, there's enough for everyone, for all eight billion people on planet Earth. Life is not a zero-sum game. Now, again, I don't mean to step on anybody's toes, but this is what the book of Jonah is about. This is what it's trying to show us here, okay? Jonah's love of country outweighs his love for God and others. Jonah's love for his own country, for his own people, for his own kingdom, had outweighed his love even for God. His loyalty to Israel outweighed his loyalty to God. His loyalty to his own countrymen outweighed the mission God sent him on in the first place. And that's what got him into trouble, and that's what makes him so angry. Tim Keller, in his book, The Prodigal Prophet, he says this about Jonah and really the rest of us and what we need to learn from Jonah's mistakes. When Christian believers care more for their own interests and security than for the good and salvation of other races and ethnicities, they are sinning like Jonah. They are sinning like Jonah. If they value the economic and military flourishing of their own country over the good of the human race and the furtherance of God's work in the world, they are sinning like Jonah. Their identity is more rooted in their race and nationality than in being saved sinners and children of God. Jonah's rightful love for his country and his people had become inordinate, too great, rivaling God. Keller's not saying it's wrong to be patriotic. He's not saying it's wrong to fly a flag. He's not saying it's wrong to celebrate the 4th of July. He's not saying it's wrong to, to stand for the pledge and sing the national anthem. But if you are an American first and a Christian second, that's where you go wrong. If you can sing with all your heart, God bless America, without thinking of the irony that he has blessed America, and now he has blessed us, going back to Abraham, so that we could be a blessing then you're doing it wrong. If your love for country outweighs your commitment and loyalty to God and his kingdom, you're doing it wrong. That's what got Jonah in trouble in the first place. That's what made him so angry to lash out at God and what caused him to, he would rather die than to see his enemies blessed and prospered. That is a hard lesson for us to learn but it's important. And I'm not just trying to read that into the story. You can see that time and time again with Jonah's attitude and character, that he cares more about his own people than anybody else. Everybody else can be lost for all he cares. And finally, the thing about Jonah is that he tries to manipulate God by misusing scripture and issuing an ultimatum. An ultim ultimatum being, it's my way or the highway, God. Take it or leave it. He says, we're your people, they're not. Just like when he quotes from Joel instead of all the way back to Exodus. How all of these characteristics of God are supposed to be for the people of Israel. 
We're your people. They are not. He draws that line in the sand and tries to manipulate God by saying, either they go or I do. Either they go or I do. Either destroy Nineveh or kill me. Pick one, God. Yikes. Okay, Jonah. Settle down there a little bit. So God shows up. God shows up in the middle of Jonah throwing a hissy fit, (laughs) throwing a tantrum, being all angsty and, and mad about the situation. And he asks a very simple question. The Lord asks, is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry? Now, if you're reading this and you know the whole story of Scripture, that, that should be, you know, a, that blue highlighted underlined phrase, that it's a hyperlink, back to Genesis chapter 4. In Genesis chapter 4, you have two brothers, Cain and Abel, right? They both offer a sacrifice to God. God accepts Abel's sacrifice, but doesn't accept Cain's. We're not told why, which bothers a lot of us. But anyway, Cain gets extraordinarily angry. Angry at God, angry at his brother, and God comes in and says, hey, is it right for you to be angry? You got to take a hold of your anger here. You got to keep track of this stuff, man. You got to keep a rein on that because anger is going to lead you someplace you don't want to go. Well, Cain didn't get his anger under control didn't stop those sinful thoughts, ended up murdering his brother. That's why I think Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, you've heard it said, don't murder, but I tell you whoever's angry at a brother is, guilt, is subject to judgment. Just he, Jesus puts anger and murder kind of right there because Cain's anger led him to taking the life of his own Brother, here Jonah's anger leads him to want the absolute worst for the people of Nineveh and himself and really even God. And here God is asking gently, like a good father, is it right for you to be angry? So what does Jonah do? He goes out, verse 5. Jonah left the city and found a place east of it. And he made himself a shelter and sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. He goes out to wait for the fireworks to start. He goes out to see a front row seat to Sodom and Gomorrah part two, right? That's what he wants to happen. That's what he's expecting to happen. He wants them to be destroyed. He wants the nuclear option, the shock and awe, the bombardment. From heaven of the people of Nineveh. That's what he's hoping and waiting for. To be continued next week with our season finale. All right. Jonah's quite the character. Jonah is quite the character. And I see Jonah pop up so often in the Gospels. Maybe not by name, but... I see Jonah so often in the stories that Jesus tells. Jonah is all throughout Jesus' stories. Jonah is both the younger and older brother in the prodigal son story. 
In Luke chapter 15, you've got the story of this uh, father who has two sons. The younger son takes his inheritance early. Dad, I wish you were dead. Just go ahead and give me my inheritance. Give me my cut and let me go. And so he does. And the younger brother goes off to a foreign land. Everything goes horribly wrong for him. He finds himself feeding pigs with nothing to eat for himself. Comes to his senses and realizes, hey, I'm better off at my father's house as a hired servant. So he makes that walk of shame all the way back. Just kind of like Jonah, who ran, who had this rock-bottom moment, and went back on mission. (laughs) But then when he does go on mission, he switches from being the younger brother in need of grace to that older brother who's withholding grace. This older brother is just... When his younger brother returns, the older one is just out in the fields like, hey, what's happening? A servant has to fill him in. Hey, your brother came back, and dad's throwing a party, and he refuses to go in. The father had to go out to him and beg him and explain to him like he was dead. Now he's alive again, and the older brother doesn't care. He gets angry, not just at his brother, but at his father. Too. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in, so his father came out and pleaded with him. Jonah is both the younger brother and the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15. More than that, Jonah is also the unforgiving servant of Matthew chapter 18. Jesus tells this parable, this, this story about this servant of a really wealthy uh, ruler, and he had racked up an incredible debt, a debt so high that there's absolutely no way he could have paid it off over multiple lifetimes. And he goes and he begs the king for forgiveness, and he says, fine, your debt's erased, no worries, completely gone. Well, that servant then goes out, finds another servant that owes him like 50 bucks, and threatens to throw him in jail until he can pay the last cent. Word gets back to the king and he says, after he had summoned him, the master said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you have also had mercy on your fellow servants as I had mercy on you? Jonah had been saved from certain death by God. And now he's going to Nineveh and wanting their utter and total destruction. He's just like this unforgiving servant who was shown immense mercy and is unwilling to then show that mercy towards others. He's also the jealous vineyard worker, okay? There's a story in Matthew chapter 20 that Jesus tells about a landowner. He he has this vineyard. He needs workers. So he goes out right at the crack of dawn, hires a whole bunch of workers, Well, it's not enough. He has too much work for that day. So he goes back into town, finds some more guys standing around looking for work, hires them on. And that repeats all throughout the day. Finally, with just a couple hours left, he goes back one more time, finds a few last hangers on and says, hey, come work for me. Okay. So they do. They do it. The job gets done. The day is over. They're lining up to get paid. You work that day, you get paid that day. That's how it worked back then. Sounds pretty good, actually. But The people line up from those who were hired last to those who were hired first. So the people who got hired and worked just a couple hours get paid their day's wage. 
A full day's wage for a couple hours' work. And then finally, the ones that were hired at the crack of dawn, bright and early, had been working under the hot sun all day, get up there, expecting maybe even more, and they're also paid a day's wage. Like, what's going on? We, we slaved away for you for all day out here in the sun. What is happening? We, we needed more. And the landowner's like, I gave you what we agreed to. <laughs> It's my money. I can do what I want with it. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? Or are you jealous because I'm generous? That's the thing. Are you jealous because I'm generous? Noah, Jonah was jealous because God was being generous and gracious towards the people of Nineveh who didn't deserve it. Well, neither did he. He is that jealous vineyard worker. He is the unforgiving servant. He is both the younger brother and the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. In fact, I would say that Jonah is the kind of person Jesus tried hardest to reach. All throughout the Gospels, you see Jesus having interactions with a group of people called the Pharisees. And Jonah would have fit right in with them. Jonah is kind of this overarching character that finds people just like him popping up time and time again through Jesus' stories because Jesus wanted to reach the people just like Jonah. Yes, he wanted to reach the sinners and the outcasts, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the, 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 the sinners of his day. But doggone it, he wanted to reach the 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 self-righteous. He wanted to reach the religious elite. He wanted to reach the people that thought they had it all figured out for themselves. He wanted to just to like shake them and make them come to their senses and realize I am in desperate need of salvation just like anyone else. And Jonah needed to learn he needed God's salvation just as much as the people of Nineveh. So, let's take a look, take a minute and look in the mirror. Let's have, let's have this I am Jonah moment as we wrap up. I am Jonah, and so are you, because I often view life as a zero-sum game. I often get upset when, when there are winners and losers, and that's how kind of the world works. And I think, well, the only way I can get ahead is for someone else to, uh, you know, be brought down a couple of rungs. That's how the world works, after all, isn't it? I think we often view life that way, as a series of winners or losers. And doggone it, I want to be a winner. I don't want to be a loser, Right? And we can't all win because everything's finite. We live under this scarcity mentality where you've got to get yours first. Look out for number one first. Everybody else can just get lost. I am Jonah in that I often get angry when wrongdoers' punishment is deferred. When people get off scot-free and they, we know that they did something wrong, we know they broke the law, everybody knows they broke the law, but because maybe some technicality they get off. Or somebody escapes punishment. Some wrongdoer gets their punishment deferred. Maybe they escape jail time or they don't get as strong of a sentence as people think they should or whatever the case may be, that angers me. 
even though as Christians we should realize we've been extended mercy and had our own debts forgiven, our own sins forgiven. So maybe forgiveness should be a cause for rejoicing instead of getting angry. I don't know. And I am Jonah in that I can find it difficult to extend mercy towards others even when God has been merciful towards me. I can often forget just how much I depend on God and how much God's mercy has changed my life and how critical it is for us to turn right around and show that same mercy towards others. You know, it's easy to point fingers at Jonah and kind of laugh and shake our heads like, what a loser, what an idiot, come on. You're God's prophet, you shouldn't even have it figured out. But like I've said before, Jonah is just a mirror for us to look into and reflect on how we are no better off than him. But here's the good news that I want to end with. Let's have the worship team come back up and we'll end with this reading from 1 Timothy chapter 1. This is Paul writing to Timothy. Paul knew his own background. Paul was that Pharisee, just like Jonah. Paul was that self-righteous dude with that attitude of like, I've got it all figured out, everybody else is wrong and deserves to die, just like Jonah. But just like Jonah, God pursued Paul and called him to a greater task, to take the gospel message to the Gentile world. And that's what he did. But he knows his own background of one who persecuted the church, of one who threw Christians in jail and who approved of their own deaths. And this is what he writes to his protege, Timothy. He says, this is a saying trustworthy and deserving full acceptance. Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. If God can save you, he can save anybody. And if you don't realize just how broken and sinful you had been in the first place, then it's often difficult to realize just how much mercy and grace you have been extended. So remember this week, as you interact with people, you're no better off than they are. God has saved you for a purpose. God has saved you for a reason so that you might be a living example of the grace of God to an unbelieving world. And let's not make the mistakes that Jonah did. Let's rely on Christ Jesus for his grace, for his mercy, and then show that to others. Amen, church.